Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Ravi, what's going on this week? Well, uh, for listeners, on the back end of this episode, we have uh, an expert from Biden's COVID-19 response team who's going to talk through the Delta variant and how we're doing against goals. So stay tuned for that. But in the news of the week, uh, last week, uh, the New York attorney general and the Manhattan district attorney announced charges against the Trump organization and its chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg. And to be clear, Trump himself has not been charged yet. But the charges that were levied um, have to do with what they call fringe benefits, which are different parts of compensation beyond salary that uh, the Trump organization was giving to its CFO and not accounting for in its taxes. And so this included an apartment for many years, a car, uh, the CFO's grandchildren's tuition, and this amounted to $1.7 million in compensation that wasn't taxed, both on the payroll side for the Trump organization and on um, the income tax side for uh, the CFO himself. And uh, this meant that there were hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes that weren't paid. And the charges seem uh, well supported uh, and so well supported that Trump in remarks over the weekend didn't even bother disputing them and instead has gone on the offensive saying that this is a witch hunt and he essentially admitted to the crimes and said that this is an issue of selective prosecution and, and political prosecution. Jason, what do we think of that strategy? Well, you got two courts here, right? You got the court of law and you got the court of public opinion. Um, court of law, I, I think Trump's approach has always been the same. He doesn't know anything about it. He figures he can make a lot of noise and intimidate people. And I don't think he's going to do anything any different here. Court of public opinion in this case, I think that's the only court that Trump really cares about anyway, right? Because he figures that he's untouchable. He hasn't been charged. He, you know, he in general, like, I don't think he can conceptualize the idea that he might get in trouble for it, frankly, for the same reason that so few of us can conceptualize the idea that a former president really is going to get in trouble. Doesn't mean they can't, but it is very hard to wrap your mind around. And at the end of the day, what does Trump care about more than anything else? Just how people see him. So He's thinking about 2024, and that's what this whole thing is about, and he's trying to get out in front of it. And honestly, like, I think that his approach to it, like everything else he's done, like he's just going to start this line now, continue to tell it this way. I think it'll be pretty effective uh, in neutralizing it if this is the extent of the charges. I'm not saying they're nothing. I mean, look, like on the payroll side, that, that's like his company evading taxes in order th that are the kind of taxes that go toward things like Social Security and that kind of stuff. And I know this is a state level charge, but that's the kind of stuff that's in payroll taxes. It's a big deal. But. I think it'll be pretty effective because it's also not new. It's not surprising. It's nothing that people are like, oh, my gosh, well, I, I would have been, you know, with Trump until I found out that his company. No, they're like, it's baked in. All the corruption is baked in. If you're with him, you're with him for everything. You're right or die, Trump. And I think he knows that. And he's just trying to hold on to those people, because remember, he's not thinking about winning a general election yet. He's thinking about making sure that if he runs, that he's the Republican candidate. And these, you got to win the division before you win the series. Right. And I want to temper our listeners' expectations here. So once again, Trump himself was not indicted. I believe if they had a smoking gun on him already, they would have uh, come out with those charges. And I think they were trying to put pressure on the CFO to flip on Trump and so far have been unsuccessful. 
I think it's also worth mentioning that Trump is a guy who famously does not use email. This is his corporation. Um, and so nailing him with charges is going to be hard. Not impossible. doesn't mean it's not going to happen, but it's going to be really, really hard. Can I add to that, like, as far as tempering people's expectations, one thing that Trump is not wrong about is that there is politics involved. It's not politically motivated. It is not a political prosecution. But one thing that is the case is you are dealing with the jurisdiction and with a prosecutor who there is no political disincentive for doing this, obviously, right? Like prosecuting Trump in New York. There's no there's no poll that's going to say that this is a mistake. Right. So what that means is, to your point, if it was possible to prosecute Trump and if the evidence was there, you're absolutely right. He would already be indicted. Yeah. And it's possible they're still collecting more information. There's a lot of speculation that they're building a case uh, of fraud where Trump and his organization are. Uh, representing their property and overvaluing it for the purposes of getting loans and then undervaluing it for the purposes of taxes, uh, which would be a big deal uh, if they were able to prove that. But obviously they haven't put those charges out yet. Now, let me make two sets of cases. Let me make the case first for why this is a worthy set of charges and then poke some holes in that and kind of give you my sense here. So number one, like Trump is saying that the, these are unprecedented charges. They're not fully unprecedented. So there have been people uh, in New York and elsewhere who've been charged with similar crimes. So there was an investment banker named Richard Josephson who basically had his company pay for his houses in a couple different places. And he went to prison for a few years. Uh, famously, Leona Helmsley in New York went to prison, very similar charges. She had her company renovate her Greenwich mansion. And the prosecutor in that case, Jason, you want to guess who that prosecutor was? I'm going to go with Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani. Exactly. <laughs> and ironically, didn't Trump like stomp on her business grave as she went to prison? I do not know, but they seem like they were fellow travelers. I, you know, I, I vaguely remember as a kid that they were kind of similarly represented in the media. He like wrote a letter to the Washington Post or something at the time that was like, yeah, get her. <laughs> oh, wow. I did not know that. So. So there's karma here. There's also double standards, obviously. But I also want to make sure we don't apply a double standard here. Now, it is also a lot of money, like the amount of money, for instance, that would have gone to the state of New York that they didn't pay would paid many kids, you know, public schooling over a few years. So this is not a small amount. But uh, there are some problems with this that you alluded to. Number one, as the New York Times itself pointed out, it's highly unusual for somebody to uh, for prosecutors to bring charges uh, for failure to pay payroll taxes on fringe benefits. That is highly unusual by the New York Times' admission. Uh, and I want to uh, also talk about the, the role of Tish James here, who's the New York Attorney General. So you have the New York Attorney General and the Manhattan DA. And full disclosure, I, I was very involved in the campaign of the, in, the, the person who will take over this case uh, in Manhattan, Alvin Bragg, who's in all likelihood going to be the next DA in Manhattan, um, but haven't talked to him about this case in any way. Uh, but the same standard I would apply to Tish James, I would apply to Alvin, which is Tish James was very public when she was running for office that she wanted to bring charges against Trump. She accused him of uh, a pattern and practice of money laundering in the campaign. Now, uh, most prosecutors will admit that that is grounds for recusal. She should not have been involved in this case, but she was out front when these charges were put out and has not in any way signaled that she's going to recuse herself from these charges. And there's a precedent for this. When um, Matthew Whitaker took over as the acting attorney general in the middle, middle of the Mueller probe, he had previously called the Mueller probe when in appearances on CNN and elsewhere, he called it a witch hunt. And Democrats, including Chuck Schumer, and Mark Warner called on Whitaker to recuse himself, and they were right to do that. And I think we should also call on Tish James to recuse herself. Uh, and I and I don't remember exactly what Alvin Bragg has said, but if he said similar things, uh, he should also recuse himself because the appearance and reality of bias in these cases is something we need to be really careful of, given the stakes here. This is a highly political uh, case, and and as the New York Times mentioned, one that these kinds of charges are not commonly brought. So we already had like there's this is already starting to feel a little icky to me. Uh, and I and I'm, I'm starting to feel uncomfortable with the dynamic here, both from an ethical perspective, but also from a political perspective. I, I bet people listening right now are just like, man, seriously, like the other side <laughs> is this. And, and the truth is, like, you're right, because 
part of being the grown-ups is you got to do the grown-up things and it sucks that the other side would never do that they would never have this conversation but that's what it is to be the grown-ups who take governing seriously and look if you're listening and you're thinking well perhaps that means there wouldn't be a conviction well then that would only mean that you're worried the evidence isn't strong enough so the evidence needs to be strong enough to get a conviction even with a special prosecutor brought in because somebody recuses themselves right uh, and it's tricky because now the evidence of wrongdoing is in front of us. But I think we should also examine how we even got into this position in the first place, right? Like, was this information just dropped off at the DA's office or did we go hunting for it? And I think we know the answer to this. We went hunting for it and, and we probably went hunting for it for political reasons. How do we know that? Because this has been going on for 15 years and it's just it, like it, the, the, the heat on this case came about. Uh, in direct proportion to Trump's increased political profile in this country. And we as a country generally try to avoid that. We try to avoid political prosecutions. Now, we don't know that for sure. Uh, and I think that's why I'm not definitive on this. I think that there's a lot of room for the prosecutors to explain themselves. And also, I think it also matters what kind of evidence comes out of this. But I have a hypothetical that I want to give to our oh, listeners on. on this. Before yeah. you do that, let me let me give you the other the other side. Like, let me play counter to that argument, which is, you know, muckraking journalists, investigative journalists on a really frequent basis do reporting that leads to prosecutions, right? I mean, there's, I don't even have to give examples. There's so many from the, from the Catholic church scandal to right here at home in Missouri recently. Uh, there was a huge Kansas city star expose that lasted over several Sundays about reform schools in the state that have now led to a serious investigation and probably an eventual prosecution by the state attorney general. So the other argument, the other way to think about that is it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to have been political. It could just be the guy was president and a lot of people were doing a lot of reporting on, you know, the bad stuff that his company was doing and that he had done in the past. And also, even before that, he was a very high profile person. So you could you could argue that the politics aside that we still could have ended up here. Yeah. And that's why the recusal is key. Like, it's really important for the prosecutors to stand up and say, hey, here's this career prosecutor I'm putting in charge of this. And with the person who has no evidence of bias one way or another and is well respected within the prosecutor's offices and says, we're sealing this person off. You explain how you're not going to punish this person for going one way or the other. Uh, and you let it happen. And, and here's a hypothetical for people that I've been thinking about a lot. Like, let's pretend for a second that uh, somebody ran for office to become the Arkansas attorney general, a uh, Republican on the uh, platform that they were going to lock up the Clintons. And then they bring charges against the Clinton Foundation and the Clinton Library. And let's pretend, I, I, I have no reason to think that this is actually true, that there, were, there was any wrongdoing with the Clintons. Um, but let's pretend like they went after the Clintons for, uh, for Bill Clinton using resources of his nonprofit to enrich himself. And it was like murky. It was like they would pay for his jet to come in when he's doing appearances. And I think there's like an apartment at the Clinton Library. And like, let's say they hit him on that for similar reasons. And then it came out that these are highly unusual charges to bring and that people don't really bring like unjust enrichment unless it's embezzlement of a nonprofit. How would we feel about that? Um, I think we'd be pretty we'd be pretty upset about it. I think we would we would rightfully point out the political nature of it. And so that's why I'm 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 worried about this. Uh, and I think uh, it could be a mistake. Uh, I think ethically it could be a mistake, but also politically, um, I, I think it could hand Trump an opportunity to, to do what he loves best, which is play the victim. Man, that's a solid hypothetical. That's uh that's a solid hypothetical. I'm sorry to bum you out. Well, I No, no, you're not bumming me out. I I'm not one of these people who um I there are a lot of people who are like they think less about what's going on in our politics day to day and more about like the literal prosecution of the past. I'm, you know, my nature, I'm much more of a, like, let's move on. I'm not saying, like, if the law doesn't say, like, if the law says he should be prosecuted, and if the evidence is there, then he should be prosecuted like anybody else. But I'm not somebody who spends a lot of time on that. I don't fantasize about Trump going to prison. I, right. I, mo I mostly just am interested in not thinking about him. So 
So Ravi, I'm curious how you take your athletic greens. Like in the morning now, my thing is it's the first thing I drink and I drink it before I eat anything. How do you do it? You know, I too take it first thing in the morning. I, I read a study that says that like if you're a coffee drinker, you want to drink water and give yourself a little bit of time before you drink coffee so you don't dehydrate yourself. And so for me, that's athletic greens. So I take the athletic greens and then I go for a walk around the block. And I have to say like, Taking it first thing in the morning and taking it in that way, giving it like a good 15 to 30 minutes to set in, I feel awesome. One tasty scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, greens, superfood blend, and more that all work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase energy and focus, like Ravi just said, aid with digestion, and supports a healthy immune system, all without the need to take multiple products. So right now, Athletic Greens is offering our audience a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit our link today. So simply visit athleticgreens.com slash majority. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash majority and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. So this episode, we're talking about climate change. So it works out perfectly that this is the first ad that we're doing for Wild Alaskan Company, which the product is really good. Like it tastes delicious. But you should also know, I mean, they're a family owned company. All their packaging is compostable and they care about their environmental footprint. So if you want to eat delicious fish and you want to not feel like you're making the situation worse because it's so hard to avoid, uh, then I think this is a great product for you. Yeah, and it delivers high-quality, sustainably-sourced, wild-caught seafood right to your door. You could choose from salmon, whitefish, or a combination, and every month there are different specials to explore, and each shipment contains premium, wild-caught, individually-wrapped portions of delicious seafood that's ready to prepare and easy to cook, always wild, never farmed or modified, and it contains no antibiotics. So get your nutrition from nature with Wild Alaskan Company. And right now, you can get $15 off your first box of premium seafood when you visit wildalaskancompany.com slash majority54. That's wildalaskancompany.com slash majority54 for $15 off your first box. wildalaskancompany.com slash majority54. Make sure to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. Well, let me bum, bum you out some more, oh, Jason. Oh, good. Okay, cool. Uh, the National Weather Service yesterday uh, warned of an excessive heat warning uh, for much of California, um, and this will last from Wednesday to Monday. This is the third potentially record-breaking heat wave over the last two months in California. They're forecasting 116 degrees in San Diego. Uh, in the Central Valley, where much of our food in our country comes from, they're forecasting 111 degrees on Sunday, Yosemite at 108 degrees. Uh, this is coming as the Pacific Northwest has been experiencing record heat waves. Portland saw its highest temperatures on record. Canada recorded its highest temperature ever on record in British Columbia. Uh, Washington State recorded its highest temperatures on record. Um, Jason, is this a huge coincidence? What's going on here? I mean, I'm not a scientist, but probably not. Uh, and it, it it is legit starting to get scary. I mean, look, I think even even those of us who care a lot about climate change, there's a part of your brain, like you have to admit, that there's a part of your brain that's like, well, at least it's probably not going to get really bad during my lifetime, right? Like that's, that's natural human nature sort of thing to think about your own survivability and how it affects you. And this, this sort of stuff is really crowding in on that. And, and what it reminds me of is what I've always thought is probably the most effective argument person to person on climate change. One of one of two of the most effective arguments, which is I think when we started calling it global warming was a mistake. And I think it was Tom Friedman, I believe, who pointed out that the way to talk the way to talk about it is global weirding. That for people to understand it better, it's not just about things getting warmer. It's about the weather getting really weird and scary. And that to me, uh, this really fits in both because it's warming, but it's it's, you know, as somebody who like lives near Tornado Alley and, you know, it's about it's about the weather getting unpredictable and weird. Right. And it's one of those things that because it's happening incrementally every year, now obviously the, the models forecast potentially that the incrementalism may eventually turn into dramatic shifts from year like to year. Exponentialism. 
Right, right. Um, especially when you look at the conveyor belt in the Atlantic Ocean, et cetera, which are some truly horrifying circumstances. Uh, but because these things have been inching up and we're talking about, you know, 0.1 degrees here and 0.2 degrees there, uh, it, it, we, I don't think we kind of truly take into perspective like the difference between life now and t- versus 20 years ago and where we're heading. Um, I often think about just how do we even talk to people about this? Because I, like you, believe in the science. I'm scared about it. Um, I, number one, have a hard time placing my own personal agency within all of this. Uh, two, comprehending like even what kind of solutions would even meet the moment. And then three, then trying to get people who don't believe in the science to even take this seriously. Because there seems like there's different categories of people. There are people who don't believe in the science. There are people who believe in the science, but minimize it. Then there are people who believe in the science, but think that our best hope is just technological solutions. This is like the kind of libertarian Silicon Valley type approach. Um, There are just our only hope is like carbon capture or whatever. And then there are the people who believe that uh, actually like slowing down emissions, et cetera, um, or dramatically reducing emissions and other kinds of, you know, public policy to cut our carbon footprint would work. But it doesn't seem like we have a concerted effort uh, either within this country or across the globe to do anything about this. So it's hard to even enlist people right now, you know? It's, It's a classic tragedy of the commons, right? And I think it comes from the fact that uh, the problem is so overwhelming, you know, and there's so many actors that have to be involved that I can see where a lot of people go to like a, a, a mir- miraculous technological solution as what they're hoping for. Right. Because also, by the way, that there's a lot of context for that. There's a lot of reference point for that in our lives now in this technological age that we live in. I mean, the conversation at the end of this podcast is about the huge strides that we have made in a short period of time uh, with regard to reopening after COVID because of a miraculous scientific effort in a very short period of time to create effective vaccines. Like, so it's, it's sort of wired into us that that's possible at this point. But as far as convincing people to care about, I don't know how to convince people on the science because it's very hard because I think people believed in the science a great deal more before, frankly, fossil fuel companies just spent an enormous amount of money, like causing people to become skeptical about the science. And and so I guess part of the way to argue on the science is to is to start with motive and be like, you understand that there are people who make a lot of money on you not believing this, right? But on the on the group that's like, well, yeah, I think it's real, but I'm not sure what we can do about it. And I'm also not that convinced that it's going to be that bad with those people. I think it's really about making them think about the lives of their kids and their grandkids, particularly if they have kids, because I think about that a lot more now when it comes to climate change. Like I think about what the world is going to be like for True and Bella and what it's going to be like, you know, when they're parents and when they are grandparents. uh, And it worries me um, a lot. And so personally, I think that's a button to push with people. Yeah. I I mean, I don't know about you, but like, I have like these like day after tomorrow type scenarios in my head that are like flashing through my brain every time I walk down the street, you know? And that's the thing is that while the context is planted in our brain for the idea of miraculous technological advances to to fix this, it also should be planted in our brains for the idea of enormous environmental catastrophe. Because two years ago, if you had told people, yeah, there's going to be this virus that's going to make it where for basically a year, you're not going to be able to visit your family or leave or, or hardly leave your house. They would have been like, no way. But now like people have seen that happen. Um, so the only upside to the fact that a lot of really, really bad, unprecedented stuff has happened over the last few years is it should be slightly easier to convince people that really bad stuff could happen <laughs> in the future. <laughs> that's oh, well, well, I don't want to end the segment on that note. What, give us give us some hope here before we move on. Um, you know, there might be aliens and they might have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They might have figured this out. I don't know. You yeah, give I us re- some hope. I rewatched uh, Independence Day over the weekend, like many people did. And, and I was thinking to myself, you know, the Bill Pullman character he reminds me a lot of Jason Kander. <laughs> I don't know. I, don't, I can't fly I th- a plane. So listeners, if you're listening to this, create some memes out there, like go to work. I want to, I want to see some good content on the internet. Let me say something about the Bill Pullman character, because I I understand what you're saying that I appreciate that military guy who was a politician and all that. The part at the end that everybody celebrates about that movie where he's like, I'm a combat pilot. I belong in the air. 
No, dude, that's not what you learned as a leader in your officer candidate school in the Navy, the Air Force or wherever you were. You learned that you cannot lead while you are in that position, that if you are leading an effort that large, you you can't be in a position where you're just as likely to get counterpoint, counterpoint. There weren't any pilots left. Uh, like I but, mean, but when he got in a plane, drunk, there were a lot of pilots. Left. They were taking drunk pilots, even at that point, uh, and putting them in the air. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, and then, and second of all, like he literally mattered in that battle. Like he 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 was cover for our guy uh, Randy See, Quaid. That is a you classic. Know? That is a classic case of arguing that the results. Uh, validate the decision. Now, yes, he ended up being one of the last planes up there, but when it started, like nobody, like he could have easily been just wiped out at the beginning of that battle. And now there's not only nobody to lead that strike force, there's freaking no president. Like, come on. Yeah, but there were going to be, I mean, pretty much if he's getting wiped out anyway, chances are we got no world left anyway. This, I think this, we're at that point. this argument yeah. is like if 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 Harrison Ford's character had not been already on the plane on Air Force One, that they should have used the Steven Seagal move from executive decision to put the president on the plane. Like that doesn't make any sense anyway. So but I digress. All right. Well, that, that, <laughs> that kills two birds with one stone. That sounds like that's our uh, aren't we relatable corner. Yeah, as well. for sure. All right. Well, Jason, um, for this week of misinformation, we want to keep it light. Let's let's poke some fun at some Ohio politicians. And I and I love the great state of Ohio. I was conceived in that state, which is something my mom hates it when I say. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the Ohio is instructive. It's instructive for a few reasons. Number one, it's a state that Democrats used to win, and we've been finding it harder to win um, over the past few cycles. Uh, And it's also a state where there was this particular kind of Republican, like the Mike DeWine type, um, pro-business, yada, yada, yada. John Kasich. Yeah, Kasich, a certain kind of moderate, right? And now uh, we have a new kind of politician. Um, We have politicians like J.D. Vance and Josh Mandel uh, who are they themselves were the old brand before, which I'm sure you have some thoughts about, like people who were positioning themselves as moderates. You know, J.D. Vance um, had previously said in 2016 that he couldn't stomach Trump uh, in an interview to, to Terry Gross and and is now tacking extremely hard right uh, and sucking up to Trump. Um, I know that you have some uh, evidence of Josh Mandel, uh, the state treasurer doing the same. The same is true of also the uh, state GOP chair, Jane Timken, who, you know, like a good a good case study of this is is this guy, uh, Representative Anthony Gonzalez, who was an Ohio State University receiver. He was an NFL first round draft pick, uh, but he, you know, committed the sin of voting to impeach Trump. And in, even in the weeks ahead after that vote to impeach Trump, Jane Timken, that state GOP chair, called him an effective legislator and a very good person. She was basically praising him when she thought the politics, this is even just a few months ago, when she thought that the politics were good for that. But then once she decided to jump into the race for Senate, um, she's been denouncing him. Uh, And so I think this means something really, this is something, this is meaningful as a sort of bellwether for the GOP's heading. Jason, as somebody who ran in Missouri, which is a state that I think has become harder for Democrats to win, what do you make of this? And can Democrats capitalize on this, this extreme turn to potentially win the state of Ohio? The first thing that I think is really confusing about it is it's not as if that brand of Republicans still doesn't still exist in the electorate there. Right. So so my point is, I think it's fascinating that you have this group of voters in this primary who, you know, I I would imagine are probably the majority of those voters. um, But they're not the entirety of those voters and that nobody in that race has the stones to be like, you know what, there's going to be a lot of people in this race and I'm not going to go compete for the voters everyone else is competing for. I'm going to go compete for the voters who I think will be enough for me to actually win a primary that splits several different directions. And by the way, that then puts me in a better position to win the general election. I think, for instance, about our friend Spencer Cox, who we interviewed on the show, who won a primary in Utah, running as a guy who admitted, like, I didn't vote for Trump and I'm not a fan of Trump. 
right? And he won the Republican primary because he looked at it and he said, uh, well, one, because Spencer's a guy who's not going to actually just say whatever he has to say to win. He actually believes in some things. Um, but he also recognized that there was a lane for that, that it wasn't going to be the majority of those voters, but it was going to be enough to win. And I, I'm fascinated that nobody is doing that in this primary, considering the fact that that's who most of these people actually seem to be. <laughs> Like, yeah. I mean, it's incredible to the extent that they maybe that's who they are or maybe right. that's what they thought everybody was looking for at yeah. one point in time. No, you, you, know? you don't know. Right. Like, that's one of the things I said this week is that actually J.D. Vance is entirely consistent. He pandered to the, you know, like crowd who stood up to Trump when he thought that was cool. And now he literally apologizes for doing that when he thinks that's cool. So. He's very consistent in that he believes in nothing other than advancing J.D. Vance. So I guess in that way, he's a rock. Um, but <laughs> my, my my point is that that I think is odd. Um, but then beyond that, yeah, I think it absolutely creates a, a opportunity for Democrats, but not just because like they're going to the Republicans are going to go in a direction that's just all Trump all the time. And, and it's not just that it's that combined with the fact that Democrats actually have a lot to brag about if we'll start bragging about it. Like there's always this thing in the party of like people in states like mine who are Democrats who get upset about you know, some of the issues that are pushed by by AOC and folks on the coast. And what I always say to those folks is like, look, you you should waste no time worrying about what uh, other members of the party who are incentivized to talk about the issues that are issues where they're from, like trying to get them to talk only about things that are going to play better here. Don't do that. Instead, make the mainstream conversation of the party doesn't have to be more moderate, but just make it the stuff that wins here. Make it about the COVID relief packages. Make it about infrastructure. Make it about the stimulus. Make it about the child tax credit. Make it about the issues that really move voters in our state to the point where then they, you know, other people in the party can talk about those issues, but they're ultimately going to come home to talk about the things we all agree on. And the example of this is last year, while there were all sorts of different, uh, you know, issues out there that you could be picked up on by by the the further left folks at the end of the day everybody came back to the same basic argument which was we got to elect joe biden and if we can consistently have a mainstream core message like that we can win but if you can do that in ohio combined with the primary forcing all of them to go hard hard right trump then you should win and you should win by a fair margin right when i think of these guys and gals i think about my experience often I coach candidates, right? When I, when I've been running arena and, and a common experience I had before COVID is somebody who come into my office and they'll say, I want to run for office, but I'm worried about X, Y, and Z. And I'll say like, look, like the only way to run is to run in a way where you could look back and say, you're proud of it. Like statistically, you're not likely to win. You should, you should absolutely believe you're going to win and you should like stridently move forward with confidence. But you need to prepare for the possibility that you don't for one reason or another. And you want to look back and say, I'm proud of what I did. And I think about this field of candidates and only one of them is going to make it out of the primary and potentially none of them wins this, this whole election. Right. Which means that most of them are going to go home with a consolation prize. And that consolation prize is going to be massive shame about the fact that they've thrown out um, at least in the case of Timken and Vance and I guess Mandel before, but I think this is his third time running for Senate or something. Um, but like second or third. Yeah. So he's been through this exercise, I think before they're now going to like the, the majority of these people in this race, all but one, or maybe even none are going to go home with a, a completely fraudulent record. They're not going to be able to look their family members in the eyes. You know, if you're JD Vance, you know, you, you had, you, you created all these great publishing relationships and relationships with people like Ron Howard, who's been in our lives since happy days. And now you can't even go back and look those people in the eyes, people who trusted you and helped you tell your story. Um, and it's just, at what, like, like, I just, I want to know their vision. Like, what's your vision for what this is going to look like, even if you won and got to the Senate? You know, you're, what, in reality, there's just going to be another Ted Cruz who's going to be, you know, forced into phone banks for Trump for, you know, the rest of their existence. And then the Trump kids just kissing ass uh, of the, the, the Trumpy GOP and playing second fiddle to family members. I just don't get it. Like, why is that 
worth sacrificing in some of these cases, like some pretty decent careers for, you know, well, and, and not even careers like at a spiritual level running for the United States Senate. It's very difficult to do. And even when you are doing it in a way where you're doing what you believe and you're saying what you believe, just the schedule, the, the amount that you're away from your family there, I can tell you that there there's always a point where you go, is this what I should be doing? Like, why am I doing this? Is this the right thing? Like, I, I, I just missed this milestone with my family. I haven't seen my parents in this long, you know, all this stuff. And you you have to continually assess for yourself am I doing the right thing? And you feel, you know, any, any uh, healthy individual or even not healthy individual is going to feel some degree of guilt about that. And when you pile on top of that, that you're doing it exclusively for your career and you're not even advancing things that you believe in, I don't know how that person wakes up every day and goes like, this is going to be great. Like, I just, yeah. I, I, I don't know how they physically get out of bed and do that. Yeah, I think they convince themselves that what they're doing is right. So I think a lot of these people at this point would pass a lie detector test saying this is what you believe. Oh, I think for JD, sure. Yeah, J.D. Vance at this point has now convinced himself that there is this elite out there that looks down upon the people like him. And he's evolved from this mild version of that with Hillbilly Elegy where he's like, let me lecture you on, um, you know, this community that I spent, what, summers or whatever. Like, you didn't even, like, completely grow up in these communities. But um, let me lecture you on, on, on what they're like to the point where he's, like, not even pretending to try to convince us to see common humanity. He's trying to, like, live off of the division and crush the libs, you know. Well, I think what's so upsetting about it is like what they're advancing is going to hurt the people that they claim to be helping. Like the people who they claim to be offended on behalf of are all getting screwed by them. Uh, and that's like, that's why it's so upsetting. And I think the reason that you've had this history of, of more moderate Republicans in a place like Ohio is because Ohio has been for a very long time, essentially a working class state. Right. I mean, that's that's what it is. And it's and it's taken them. Now it's it's a majority white state. Right. And it and not unlike Missouri, when it comes to the Latinx demographic, for instance, it, it hasn't kept pace with the rest of the country. And all of those demographics not keeping keeping pace of change with the rest of the country has led to a state that has become more red as opposed to the rest of the country. But it, it is still with that majority white population. It's still majority working class. And that's why it's in this you know, fight with itself as to whether or not uh, it's it's going to follow the kind of populism that um, blames rich people or the kind of populism that blames brown people. And and so we're seeing that fight play out. And these these white guys are like blame the brown people. And uh, I hope they lose. This week for Graham and Orr, uh, it's going to be a slightly longer segment because we thought, hey, you know, as this podcast exists to help you convince people to join the majority of Americans that are progressive, it also makes sense for this podcast to exist to help you convince the people in your life to join the majority of Americans who are vaccinated. So with that, Ravi, tell the folks about uh, our guest. Uh, well, my good friend Sujit Rao is a member of uh, President Biden's COVID-19 response team. And uh, over, you know, since the beginning of this administration, he's been working in the trenches uh, to just help turn this country around um, with this pandemic. And, and he and his colleagues have been doing heroic work. And so we wanted to invite them on to learn more about what it's like to battle the pandemic, uh, but also give us a sense about this Delta variant and, and where we're heading in the months ahead. So, Sujit, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. First time, long time. Excited to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take my answer off the air. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, Sujit, Biden made a speech this week. Maybe you just set the scene here. You know, what did he say? You know, I know that we had a, a big milestone uh, we wanted to reach this week. How did we do against that milestone? And what can we expect in, in these next few weeks? Yeah, well, thanks again for having me. I'll kind of recap where we are. And I think the best way to describe it is that as a country, the upshot is that we're way ahead of where everyone thought we would be at this point. And I think the best way to put that into perspective is to sort of take a step back and look back for a moment. So if we look back six months ago to early January before the president took office, 
this was the situation. Cases were at an all-time high, more than 250,000 being reported every day on average. Thousands of people were being hospitalized and were dying every day. Businesses were closed. Kids were not in school. The economy was really struggling. And in many cases, vaccines are in relatively short supply. Now, fast forward to today, and if you look around, it really is amazing how far we've come so fast. Right now, cases, hospitalizations, and deaths are all down by more than 90%. Uh, 67%, or two out of every three adults in the U.S., are vaccinated with at least one shot. And that includes, by the way, almost 90% of seniors. Uh, by the end of this week, we will meet our ambitious goal of having 160 million Americans fully vaccinated. And part of the reason that's the case is that vaccines are nearly ubiquitous these days. They're within a few miles of nearly every American across the country. Now, just to be clear, this kind of progress was not inevitable or even a given. Uh, we've had a plan that called for and created a whole of government approach. And really lately, that's been an all of America approach to beating this pandemic. And we've been using that plan and sticking to that plan since day one and will continue to do so, adjusting to the new realities on the ground. Now, what this means today, and just over the past week, celebrating a July 4th holiday, businesses are reopening, schools are getting ready to reopen in the fall if they aren't open already or are still in session. Um, and in many, many communities across the country, things really do feel different and hopeful and like they're getting back to normal. Now, that looks different for everybody. For me, that's meant that you know, this summer, I've already been able to spend time visiting my family, including my two twin six-year-old nephews that I hadn't seen in, in about a year. Uh, it also means that we can go to gyms again so I can try to keep up with YouTube maniacs and our fitness group. So, you know, the, the overall upshot is that we're definitely on the offense now, um, but it, we're also really clear-eyed that there's still a lot of work that remains to be done to bring the pandemic to an end. And we know this virus can be relentless. Yeah, Suji, and talking about that, obviously, like the big concern right now in this country as we reopen is this this Delta variant. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is and how it's different than some of the variants that we've dealt with since the beginning of the pandemic? Yeah, the short answer is that we're concerned about the Delta variant, but it doesn't change the collective top priority of how we should be moving forward, which is to make sure that as many folks as possible get vaccinated. And I'll say more about the variant in a second, but the most important thing to know about it is that the data that we have shows that vaccines are very effective at preventing infection and extremely effective at preventing severe disease. So the most important thing we can do with respect to the Delta variant is continue to get vaccinated. And especially I imagine for your listeners, most of them are probably vaccinated to make sure that their friends, family, and others in their communities are vaccinated. Now, in terms of the Delta variant specifically, we know it's very contagious. Um, it's more contagious than any variant we've seen to date, for the most part. Um, CDC is predicting that it's going to become the dominant strain in the U.S. before long. It's already grown really rapidly in the few months since it's been around. And so that, of course, creates extra urgency for us to make sure that uh, that everyone's getting vaccinated. And when you think about, you know, a big part of your job is trying to get at pockets of unvaccinated and convince them to take the vaccine, when you think of the lowest hanging fruit that's left, what do you think about? So there is some data that suggests that there are, in, it varies state by state, but there are still a lot of people that want to get a vaccine, are ready to get a vaccine, and just haven't done it yet. And the name of the game there is just to meet people where they are, to make it as easy as possible, to make it as convenient as possible. President yesterday in his speech talked about doing more to help employers and to push employers to do more on-site vaccination efforts at workplaces to make sure that employers are giving paid time off to uh, employees so that they can get vaccinated or recover from shots. There's now uh, a tax credit available for small and medium-sized businesses to do exactly that. So it's not just putting the burden on businesses to do that. Um, also, we're going to be working with primary care doctors, pediatricians to really just go out and meet people where they are to make it as convenient as possible. There's still a decent chunk of folks there. There's other folks that need a little bit more engagement and there's a whole host of strategies that we can take as a country to, to do that as well. You know, part of your job is to call up companies, influencers, famous people, powerful people, and try to enlist them in this cause. Is there anything you could share about just 
you know, maybe maybe share an example of a, a promising example of how that can work. And maybe without you might not be able to name a company or anything, but maybe give us an example of where you've kind of run up against a wall in those efforts. Yeah, I think, you know, one thing our team has done a really good job of, I think, is to really approach anyone and everyone that we think can be helpful in this fight against this virus and in the, the push to help folks get vaccinated. Now that looks a lot, that looks very different depending on the context, right? So we've had, you know, we're working with, you know, influencers and, and uh, celebrities to do public service announcements, things like that, but also working with companies to reach their potential customers or their users. I think you may have seen you know, a couple months ago, Lyft and Uber were providing free rides to vaccination sites. All the major dating uh, websites, Ravi, I think you know something about that. Uh, added a uh, vaccination <laughs> unnecessary <status>. shot. Like. <laughs> <laughs> they added like a uh, Ravi, Ravi. You use all the major dating websites. <laughs> Apparently. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Ravi is like the power user that you test all the features with and he just tells you what's good <laughs> and what's not. I didn't um, back to COVID. Anyway, but you know, I mean, dating web, dating apps added vaccination status and gave special privileges to people that reported being vaccinated. Uh, we've seen a lot of sports leagues do on-site clinics and have clinics at the games. The Phoenix Suns were doing something like that. They're currently in the NBA finals. How much effort have you put in to convince Cole Beasley to take the vaccine? Listen, I believe the Buffalo Bills outreach to uh, to our esteemed podcast uh, host here. So that one's on you, brother. Well, <laughs> but, you know, like you mentioned we've talked a little bit on the show in the past about the natural incentive, possibly, of making it like, oh, you want to go to this concert? You want to go to this ball game? Well, you're going to need to show that you're vaccinated. Is that, you know... This may not be a subject that everybody wants to talk about, but is that something y'all are considering? I think we're, you know, we're not considering like federal mandates right now or anything like that. But we certainly welcome and encourage, uh, you know, folks who are running large events or something like that, like to, to do what they can to make sure that folks are safe. Because the reality is we know that if you are vaccinated, um, you are protected. And if you are not vaccinated, you are not protected. And so one thing we saw, including over the July 4th holiday, is for groups of people that are vaccinated, we can start to really do the things we love again, right? We can gather, we can go to sporting events, we can have parties. Um, those sorts of things are available to us. And so we want to be very, you know, encouraging to show that if you are vaccinated, it is our ticket back to the things that so many things that we love. How frustrated are you personally, Sujit, by some of the crazy stuff out there because like by way of a story i was talking to a friend yesterday who is a, a doctor he works in sports medicine and he has a lot of athletes that you know he works with some at the collegiate level some even at the professional level and he was telling me how much time he's spending right now on just myth busting for the you know about the vaccine and one of the things he said that stood out to me is he was like you know i'm working with these guys and gals who are like you know some of them are are, are studious some of them are real student athletes but a lot of them are just they're athletes really is what they are and suddenly they're all researchers suddenly every time i talk about the vaccine they're like well i really have a lot more research to do and he goes and i just keep wanting to be like you've never researched anything in your life and you're not going to research this so it's so you just don't want to do it so like what would you you know one how frustrating is this for somebody in your position and two what would you suggest somebody like that do? Like, how would how is it best that they approach it? Because I bet a lot of people in our listening audience are dealing with this kind of ridiculousness coming back at them about the vaccine. It's a great question. And I think your audience is, has been doing a lot of what I think we need to be doing and have been doing it for years, which is the most important thing we can do. It's It's frustrating to hear the conspiracy theories and the misinformation, of course. But I think one the way we're going to get to where we need to be is if conversations happen among and between people who know each other, trust each other, love each other or whatever. And, you know, people don't have to take my word for it. And that's fine. The most important thing you can do, though, is check on the people in your life who you're not sure if they're vaccinated and have a conversation with them. Don't browbeat them. Don't assume the worst. Really listen because there are people that have questions out there and it's, you know, it's totally legitimate to have questions. People, people have questions, they have concerns, they should be heard. They should have the opportunity to ask those questions to people, to their healthcare expert, to their doctor, pharmacist, to you. 
and really have those conversations and listen to what they're saying and try to create space to talk about why you made the decision to get vaccinated, why it's important to you, who you, what you're solving for, who you, who's most important to you that you want to protect. And I think if everyone, if all of your listeners, if I can hijack the grab an or segment for a moment, it would be to really do that. Reach out to the 10 people in your life that you're not sure if they're vaccinated and just have a conversation about it. There's a lot of resources available for folks to get more information or find a shot. If you text your zip code to 438-829, which is get vax, if you text your zip code there, you get a list of the places nearby that have shots available and you can walk in. But really, you know, your show and your listeners every day are engaging with folks that and having difficult conversations. And I just think adding this to the list of things that people are talking about, where again, you're not trying to browbeat them, but just trying to talk to them and understand where they're coming from. I do think that we can move the needle in a meaningful way there. Pun very much intended. Well, Suji, thanks for joining us, brother. Um, And keep fighting the good fight. I appreciate it. Thanks for having us, guys. Sujit, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, For everybody out there, remember, you can leave us a voicemail at 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. And, uh, you know, ask us a question, give us a comment, whatever, and we will respond to it on the show to try and help you deal with these issues in your life as they come up. Uh, I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, Let's see, if you go there this week, you will see uh, my uh, surprise FaceTime call from President Clinton about my book combined with with me on Twitter just just being completely fed up with J.D. Vance. Uh, Ravi, what, what's, what's going on in your social this week at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram? Just a lot of writing, just sitting around coffee shops in New York and uh, just waiting for inspiration to strike. All so. right, so you can you can catch up on that action-packed content uh, of Ravi's at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.